we have a series that we're going through at the moment called um, Devoted. And we got, what we're doing is we're taking the book of Acts chapter by chapter from the very beginning right through to the very end. And today we're up to chapter 23, which means we've been at it for 22 weeks. And there's about five chapters left, which will take us right through to January 31. And January 31, if you remember from two weeks ago, you know what's happening January 31? We're launching the growth groups for, uh, for next year. So the growth groups will be on all sorts of things from tennis groups, biblical groups, um, books, uh, groups going through the book of um, Daniel. We'll have fitness groups. We'll have um, board games groups, all sorts of things. So keep that in the back of your mind as we're moving towards January 31. Be thinking, for 2015, what small group or what growth group am I going to be Part of it. In fact, you can be about a four throughout the year because of the, the terms that we'll be doing. So let's jump into Acts chapter 23. Before, before we, we open up scripture, I just want to sh- um, share a little story that kind of sets the scene from my own experience back in high school. Now, I went to a high school that was very large. My primary school only had about 80 or so people, but my high school had well over a thousand people. And if for the teachers, it's probably hard managing the school of 100 or so, let alone a school of over 1,000. And sometimes things would get a bit chaotic and people would get upset with each other and fights would break out at school. Now, what would happen at my school when a fight would break, off, break out? It didn't matter where it was in the whole of the, the school, you would know that there was a fight going on because suddenly there would be this mass rush of everyone from all corners of the school running to where the fight was. And someone usually calling out, fight, fight, fight. And then you get there and there's two people in this big, um, wild, confused, crazed mob sort of around them. And, and then they'd be just cheering and cheering their mom or whatever was taking place. It's sort of a sick thing that would take place at my school sometimes. And then slightly behind, one step behind, you'd see the teachers. The teachers, maybe the principal, whoever it is, running down because they knew something was happening because if that many people are running around, then something's going down, and they would race up, and pretty soon they would get in there and do their job, which is to maintain the peace, I suppose, but one of the things teachers do. Now, the story in Acts chapter 23, the same sort of confusion we find, but since a few of you might not have been here the last few weeks, let's give a quick um, revision of where we've been so far. We've got up on the screen, yep. Acts chapter 23. So Paul has been finishing his third missionary journey. So he's been coming back down along the the Mediterranean. He's gone to places such as Miletus, where he met with the Ephesian elders. He went to um, Caesarea, where he met with Philip. And you remember Philip was the close friend of of Stephen, whom Paul had, had killed. And he keeps going through, and he finally arrives at Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, there's this sense of foreboding because... At every city where Paul had gone, the Spirit had been leading, speaking through various people and coming up to Paul. Paul, you're going to face hardships. Paul, you're going to have persecution. Paul, you're going to have imprisonment. And I guess the, the most dramatic was when Agabus took Paul's belt, wrapped around Paul's hands and said, this is going to happen to you in Jerusalem. So Paul gets to Jerusalem. At first he meets with the elders. He starts sharing some of the missionary journeys from around the Gentile areas where he'd been ministering. And they're really excited but then the, the church leaders in Jerusalem share some of their ministry experiences, and they say, thousands have converted to the faith from the Jewish people, and all of them are, do you remember? Zealous for the law. And they've heard rumors, Paul, 
they've heard rumors that you've been going around from place to place teaching people against the law and against the people and against the temple. So we have this plan for you. And you might have remembered this. We unpacked this in the last couple of sermons. The plan is to take four people who had a Nazarite vow and they were going to purify themselves. They said, Paul, go with them down to the temple, pay for their expenses and be um, a part of what's going on there. So everyone will look at and see, guess what? Paul, those, those rumors are false. Paul is for the law. So Paul did this plan. He went down into the temple. And while he was there on the seventh day, someone saw him. And do you remember what they, they cried out? They said, help, help. Here is the man that's been causing trouble all over the world. Here's the one that's teaching against our people and is, has been ta- causing people to, to go against our ways and against the temple. And what happened? Just like at my school, when they'd say, fight, 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 people started to um, rush in from all over the place. Um, people, and, the, and they surrounded Paul, and they were angry with him. And they thought, we're going to get you. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna, um, kill you if we need to. And they were wanting to. And just like at my school, usually the teachers are just a step behind. In this story, we find that the, the commander who was in charge, in fact, he was in a place called the Fortress of Antonio, and I'll show you a picture of a model of it here. So there's the temple there, and there was this fortress which sort of overlooked the temple. And the purpose of that was so the Romans could always keep a, a bit of a, a watchful eye on, on the Jews. And so they're up there, and they see that there's this commotion going on, there's this confusion, there's this, 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 this crowd that's getting into a wild frenzy. And so down runs the, the commander, whose name was um, Claudius Lysias, I think was his name, yep. And with his, his um, big group of soldiers, and they rush in there, and they come in and they grab, and they, say, and they break up the, the fight. Because their job, just like the teachers, is to, is to keep, keep the peace. And then because they were trying to kill Paul, they literally have to drag him away from these people, and they carry him up the steps. And the steps went back up into the barracks. And this is where the sermon that David preached um, took place. And he gets up the stairs and he says, Oh, may I ask you something? Before you take me in the barracks, can I speak to the people? And the, and the commander says, okay, sure, do that. And he stands there and he speaks in the, 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 the language of the Hebrews. And he starts giving his testimony. He shares what God has done in his life, his upbringing. He shares his conversion experience. He shares how he had met Jesus, the resurrected Christ, on the road to Damascus. And, and he's sharing this. And, and remember, the commander probably didn't understand the, la- the Hebrew language that he was speaking in. So he's probably just standing back there on the steps, watching to see what would happen. Just He's speaking in something he doesn't really understand. Next moment, he said his mission, which was go to the Gentiles. And when he said that word Gentiles, suddenly they all rushed back in hi- on him again in a frenzied um, r- sort of riot. And they're trying to kill him again. Away with him, away with him, away with him. And the commander says, what has this guy done? This guy must be trouble. And so he says, all right, take, them, take him by force, bring him back into the barracks, and we're going to torture him in the barracks until we get the truth of what has really gone down. And that brings us to our story. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 22 and verse 30. Acts chapter 22 and verse 30. So it's the last verse of chapter 22, going to 30, 23. And here, as we go through this, 
I want to try and make this as relevant as possible as we can to our lives, since it's the first Sabbath of 2015. Um, I want you to just, when we study through this today, I want you to be thinking in the back of, of your minds, how does this apply to my year that is coming up before me? Okay? Often people make uh, New Year's resolutions. Sometimes they keep them. Sometimes they don't keep them. I remember two years ago, one of my New Year's resolutions was to memorize the book of Revelation in that following year. And, and I memorized one chapter, and that's as far as it got. So the next year, I thought my, my resolution this year is to memorize the book of Revelation. And I got through to, I think, part when the third chapter. And I'm not sure if I'm going to have that same resolution this year again. But it's good to have resolutions. You don't always achieve them. But if you have something that we can strive towards, that can be helpful. So keep that in the back of your mind. 2015, how will this apply to my lives, my life? Okay, Acts 22, verse 30, it says, But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. So just like a teacher, when the two people are are fighting and they're, they're angry, and you can't really get much sense out of them at that point. Usually they set them aside and wait for them, the emotions to calm down. And they bring everyone in together and they say, all right, let's sort out what really went down. So here the commander of the Romans does that. He, he gets the, the Sanhedrin, the council, to meet together, which was in the, conveniently in the temple as well. He brings Paul down as well. And he says, all right, let's get everyone in together. And let's get to the bottom of why everyone is fighting, why there's all this confusion. And, and see what is really the problem with this man, who must be a terrible person because... Everyone is so eager to to kill him. So, 23 verse 1, Paul gives his defense. And what would you do in that situation? Just imagine that everyone is out to get you, the Romans are there, and they're saying, what is the reason why they're so angry with you? This is what Paul says. It says, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. How many of you could say that same thing that Paul did there? I don't know if I could, necessarily. I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And we're going to come back to that phrase in a little little while. And then it says, verse 2, And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Did he get much of a chance to defend himself there? One sentence through his defense, and strike him. I don't know if it was a, a slap or a fist to the face, or what it was, but he's cut off in the middle. And how would you feel if someone did that to you? Pretty worked up? Well, Paul gets worked up. And here's one of the few times where you see Paul, his emotions really start to, to rise. And remember, Paul is just an ordinary person. In our, in our, in our um, series devoted, Ordinary People, Extraordinary God, here we see one of the ordinary moments of Paul's Paul coming through. Uh, verse 3, Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. What do you think of that? A bit of name calling? Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Remember, that was the charge that they'd put against Paul. He's teaching everyone against the law and against the temple. And so they drag him in there, and then they're, they're, they're having this, this trial, which is, not really a fair trial in the slightest. Injustice is, is 
is the prevailing thing that's taking place. Injustice is, is what's taking place. And Paul says, you're charging me about being against the law. You guys have been trying to kill me. You haven't even, you're just pres- presuming that I'm guilty. You're not being fair, guys. At that moment, it says, verse 4, those who stood by said, and I just imagine all the, there was about 71 of these leaders in the, these Jewish leaders in the Sanhedrin. I just imagine them standing back and just being like, mouth sort of drops open in shock, mixed with anger, and they say, would you revile God's high priest? Uh Uh-oh, Paul's made a mistake here. When Paul was last in Jerusalem, Caiaphas was the high priest. And now there's a different person. And so the person he had just told off was not just a random person in the, in the Sanhedrin, but rather it was God's, the representative of God's people, the high priest. And at this moment, Paul says, verse 5, And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Paul realized he's stuffed up, he said the wrong thing. Again, the very human side of Paul, the very ordinary side of Paul is really is shining through here. So what do we get out of this first part of the story? I would like to suggest that spiritual realities often contradict earthly appearances. Okay? Spiritual realities often contradict earthly appearances. And what do I mean by that? In this situation, you have the Jewish leaders. These are the, the leaders of, of God's people. These are the high priests. He's the one that went into the most holy, holy place of the temple. He's the one who represented the people before God. And from an outsider, they, they would have looked at these people and thought, these are the people that maybe parents would have wanted their children to grow up like these people. These are the, these are the, the leading people. These are the, the holy men of God. These are the ones who have it all together. From earthly appearances, that's what it would have seemed like. What about Paul? At this point, he's, everyone hates him. He's the enemy of the people. He's dragged before the court. He, as a criminal, he's being beaten. He's, people would have looked on, and the earthly appearances would have, would have said that, the earthly appearances would have said that he is someone that, I don't want my kids to grow up like that criminal, but what was the spiritual realities at this time? Who was the one that was doing God's will? It was Paul. And so spiritual realities often contradict earthly appearances. Now, the, the accusation that Paul put upon the high priest was, you're a whitewashed wall. Okay, what did he mean by that? Jesus used a similar phrase as well um, of the Pharisees when he, in his ministry, and he called them whitewashed, do you remember? Tombs, whitewashed tombs. And by that he meant that whitewash was, I'll go back to my picture. There we go, there's some buildings with, with whitewash on them. It was kind of like the, the way that they, they made their, their houses and things look beautiful. This beautiful white, you just imagine white paint that are put o- over there. And here were the, the Jewish leaders that would dress themselves up, they'd put the, the whitewash on them, and they looked really beautiful. But inside, they were like a wall that was flimsy and crumbling down. And even in even stronger language, what Jesus used, inside the, the whitewashed tomb were dead bones, and that was their true spiritual condition. However, in contrast to this, in Acts 23, verse 1, I want to read you again how Paul began his, his defense. He said, 
Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, Paul, remember, Paul was someone who used to be one of these people. He used to be in that spot where he was chasing down Christians, where he was anyone who was a, a, per, a follower of this, this supposed resurrected Jesus was the most terrible person that he would, he would go and he'd drag them into prisons and hopefully kill them as well. So he knew that he had a lot of things that they would have been unhappy about with him. So he doesn't say that I have done nothing wrong in your eyes, but rather he says, I stand here having a good conscience before God. He wasn't, what drove Paul was not to please people. But what, what drove Paul was his conscience and his own walk with God. So 2015, if Paul was coming up with a New Year's resolution for 2015, maybe it would have said something like this, I will live this year before God in all good conscience. Now, what would this look like if we were to make this same sort of a um, resolution? What would it look like? Well, firstly, as I mentioned before, it would look like it would involve being driven to please God and not people. For Paul, every decision, every goal, every activity that he did, he thought, how does this serve God? How does this please God? How does this follow God's will? And he wasn't doing it for what everyone else around him saw. He did it to please God. Now, this is challenging for me as well. And all of us, in all, whatever we do from day to day, this can be challenging. As a pastor, it's easy to think, oh, there's lots of people that see you. I've got employers, things like that. How many sermons have people seen me preach this year? How many people have I led to Jesus? And it's easy to think, um, how do I impress people around me? But if you're going to live before God in all good conscience, what drives you is not, how do I please God? I mean, how do I please people, but how do I please God? Number one. Number two, it involves living the same even when people are not watching. Watching. Character is proven when people aren't watching. Would you agree with that? With these high priests, they appeared to be holy. They appeared to be the ones who um, had it all together. But their character was proved when they were together and they were conspiring against Paul. And we're going to find, see that um, really true. And, and again, this is practical for us because so often we, we, we come to things and think, oh, I hope so-and-so doesn't see me doing that. For me, it could be easy. If, if I ever catch myself thinking, oh man, I hope a church member isn't around at this moment, then I'm not living according to this. So live the same even when people aren't watching. And number three is store up your treasure, not on the outside, but on the inside. In 2 Corinthians, and Paul wrote this, chapter 4, verse 6 to 7, he says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is shining in our lives on the inside. We have the, the Spirit abiding within us, and, and that is the true treasure the character within, the way that God is transforming us from, from within. And he says, but we have this treasure in what? Jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. How contrasting is this to the whitewashed wall? 
the whitewashed wall, beautiful on the outside, but the inside of the whitewashed tombs is dead bones. And here we see this, this jar, this clay jar, very t- ordinary on the outside, very average on the outside. And maybe there's people here who feel like that. They just feel like an ordinary clay jar. But what's important to God is what's on the inside, is the surpassing treasure of having Jesus living within. So store up your treasure on the inside. Let's keep going through our passage. And we're basically going to focus on the first 11 chapters um, this morning. I mean, the first 11 verses, sorry, not, not 11 chapters. That might take a while. Okay, so verse 6 through to 10, it says, Now when Paul perceived, so, so Paul has just been, remember he, was stru- he tried to make his defense, he was struck down. And then he called whitewashed wall, which ended up being the wrong thing to say. And he had to repent from what he had just said. And now he's just sort of standing there just thinking, what do I do in this situation? And he looks out upon all the people and he's, and he's trying to read them. He's trying to think, who are these people? And, and, and how do I possibly even share the gospel with these people who are so furious and so angry? And this is what it says. Verse 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. So he looks out there and he goes, Pharisee, 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 Sadducee, Sadducee, Sadducee. Aha, I'm a Pharisee. And it's because of the resurrection that I'm on on trial. Verse 7. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, And the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisee party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What a contrast. What if a spirit or an angel spoke with him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them, by force, and bring him into the barracks. Now, remember my story at the beginning about the, the kids fighting in the playground at, at school? You just imagine the teacher sitting these two people that were fighting down in the, maybe in the principal's office and says, all right, now let's have a, a civilized discussion here. And I want you to, be, let's get the facts out on the table. One person speaks, the other person says, that's not true. And then they're fighting again. That's what takes place here. And we see the Sadducees, the Pharisees are fighting the Sadducees, the Sadducees are fighting Paul, and then all the the Romans come in, and everyone is fighting everyone. It's chaos, it's confusing, it's it's just crazy. And then the commander says, all right, this is achieving nothing. Grab him, and they have to grab him by force. So they were probably like pounding into Paul, just furious and angry, and they drag him off back to the barracks. But I want to sort of focus in on the, the sentence that Paul uses to describe the reason that he is there on trial. I want you to imagine, like, all of us are in different places in life. We have different jobs. We have different situations. And if you were to describe your current situation in one sentence, what would you use? That's kind of what Paul is doing here. He stands up and he sees Pharisees, Sadducees, and he describes his one, in one sentence, because he knows he's not getting more than one sentence out. He tried before and he got one sentence and they started smashing him around. One sentence, what would he use? And he says, 
if you remember, he says, It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. I am here because of the resurrection of the dead. Now, why did Paul say this? Partly, it was probably strategic. Remember, he realized that half of the audience were believed in the resurrection, the Pharisees. The other half were the Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Maybe he could get them fighting each other as opposed to fighting him. Maybe he's still fume, uh, sort of a bit stirred up from getting hit in the face and he's still kind of trying to lash out at them or whatever it might be. So there might have been an element of, of um, strategy in him saying this. But at the same time, Paul was there because of the resurrection of the dead, wasn't he? Remember, Jesus, the, the Jewish people which Paul was a part of, and remember each thing that he says here, he starts by saying brothers, brothers, and he's speaking to them. Because Paul was actually once, when he was younger, he actually sat on that same council. And when he was a part of that, and, and back in the time when Jesus was, on, was doing his ministry, they desperately wanted to get rid of Jesus, this, this, this man who had these bold claims that he was the Son of God, these bold claims that he was the way to salvation, these bold claims that, that he was the one who could take our sins and give us the hope of salvation. And Paul was, was zealous to, to, to shut this, this Christ down and, and all of his followers down as well. Stephen rises up and Paul says, I'm going to get him. And he approves of his execution. And then he goes on this rampage and he's, he's um, rounding people up, putting them in prison, trying to kill them. And he's going to Damascus with the intent of arresting the people of Damascus. And what happened? Who did he encounter? He encountered the resurrected Jesus. And when he encountered Jesus, the entire direction of his life fully changed. When the resurrection to Paul meant that every claim that Jesus had made and every claim that his disciples had made about him was true. The resurrection meant that this person that he was persecuting was actually in reality the one who had held the, his salvation in his hands. And then when he experienced the transforming love of that resurrected Jesus, that even though he had persecuted and he had killed his followers, and he realized that Jesus said, that this is going to be my instrument to do my will around the world, he experiencing that, he's experienced that transforming love and that completely changed his life. And so for Paul, if he was to have a New Year's resolution, another thing that he might have might be this. I will do all that I can to share the good news of the resurrected Christ. Would you agree with that? Now, in these last few verses that we read, there's a few things, a few things that we can learn from Paul that gives us little hints and um, helpful ideas on how we can actually have the same sort of life purpose as what Paul did, to share, to experience and to share the, the good news of the resurrected Christ. The first one is this. Seek to understand people. As I said, each thing that he said to me, he said, brothers, Paul stood there with a intimate knowledge of what the Sadducees believed, how they thought, what drove them, what was important to them. He also knew the Pharisees, because he grew up with them. He knew how they thought, how they reasoned, 
what things that they would fight for, what things they were passionate about. And Paul looked in this crowd, and because he knew those people, he understood those people, he was able to navigate the situation. And we find all the way through the book of Acts, we see Paul, whether it's with the people in Athens, whether it's in, with the Jews, with the Gentiles, every situation he comes with, into contact with, he seeks to understand those people. And then when he knows those people, he, he comes close to those people, he's better able to minister to those people. And so the challenge is to come close to people this year. Get to know people. Understand how people think. Now, it's hard sometimes when, say, preaching, and, and there's so many visitors here, I don't know a lot of you. But each of us can have some people that we get to become close with, and we can un- learn to understand how, do this, how does this person think. Number two, find common ground. It's amazing how common ground can suddenly help you build a relationship with someone. Have you ever experienced that? Just in the last week when I was back in Port Macquarie, I called up with two, two friends from high school, and of all the friends from high school, and as I was, I was thinking about this just the other day, all the people that I'm still friends with are people that I have some degree of common ground with. The two that I caught up with, that I used to go surfing with them, and so I had that in common, and so I still catch up with them. Another friend that I've caught up since high school, I used to ride motorbikes with him, so I had that common ground. Um, the friends that, are, that came to church, they're the ones I'm closest with, because I had some sort of common ground with them. And it's amazing when you, go, when you go traveling overseas and you're in a place where everyone just seems foreign, everyone speaks a different language, and then you find an Australian. Have you ever had that experience? And suddenly this person that you would have, if you're in Sydney, you would have walked past them and had no interest in them whatsoever. You see this Australian, you hear that accent, and you think, I have to meet this person. What is this person doing in this strange part of the world? And suddenly that relationship just just grows. And here in the story, we see Paul, he looks out there and he sees that quite a number of these people are Pharisees, and he says, you know what? The thing that is central to my life, the resurrection of Jesus, that is something that these people hold very dearly. And he says, I am here because of the resurrection of the Christ. And you notice that instantly he had gained and he had won that whole group of the Sanhedrin. And they're defending him. We find no problem with this man. He believes what we believe. And so the challenge is, as we go out this year sharing the resurrected Christ, is to find common ground with people and use that as a a building block to go and share the gospel with them. Number three, be willing to admit you are wrong. It's really hard when you try to share your faith with someone. You kind of, sometimes, you say, I have something that I know that's important to me that you don't have, and I want to share this with you. Now, what happens when you share something and they say, actually, what about this? And you go, oh no, I've made a mistake. I said the wrong thing. What do we do in those moments? Do we say, do we try to continue to back ourselves up? Do we keep going with that? Or are we like Paul? Are we humble enough to say, you know what? I got that wrong. Here, Paul, he, he, he says to the high priest, you're a whitewashed wall. And they say, oh, you said that to the high priest. And Paul realized he made a mistake and he said, even though he was on the defense, even though he, he had been struck in the face, he said, you know what, I've made a mistake, and he stepped back. Let's be people who are humble and willing to admit that we are wrong this year. So I will do all that I can to share the good news of the resurrected Christ. All right, well, down to the last two verses that we're going to unpack this morning. 
And the first one is, we're going to go, so chapter, we're in chapter 23, verse 10, the end of what we just read before, and then verse 11. It says, And when the dissension became violent, the the tribune, which is the commander, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. So Paul, again, is taken by the soldiers, put down and put into prison. And you can just imagine, the thing about prison, I haven't been there, but I would imagine that you have a lot of time to think, a lot of time to process things. And so Paul is there, and his mind is, is going over the, the things of the day. And I can imagine he's there, and, he's, and, and, and that day, everything that he once had was put before him. Remember, he said, brothers, brothers, Paul was one that looked at these, these important people, these people with this high position. He had all of that once upon a time, and he had lost it all. And I'm sure he would have been thinking, man, that was me back in the day. And so he was thinking, he would have been contemplating his past, and he's contemplating where he's been brought to. He's in prison, this cold, lonely prison. Everybody hates him. He's been beaten up. He's probably bleeding, wounded, bruised. And he's thinking, I'm in a bad position here. Another thing that would have been going through his mind was, did I, do, did I really glorify God in my actions today? And in fact, in the book Acts of the Apostles, we see that Paul actually had a lot of doubts about the way that he, he behaved himself that day. It says, Later, while reflecting on the trying experiences of the day, Paul began to fear that his course might not have been pleasing to God. Now, the bruises and the injuries, they might not have worried Paul so much. But I'll tell you what, this would have plagued on his conscience. Paul began to, uh, could it be that he had made a mistake after all in visiting Jerusalem? Had his great desire to be in union with his brothers led to this disastrous result? Remember, city after city, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem. He thought, God is leading me to Jerusalem. He gets there, chaos, he's in prison again. Was I really following God's voice? The position which the Jews as God's professed people occupied before an unbelieving world caused the apostle intense anguish of spirit. How would those heathen officers look upon them, claiming to be worshippers of Jehovah and assuming sacred office, yet giving themselves up to the control of blind, unreasoning anger, seeking to destroy even their brethren who, de- who dared to differ with them in religious faith, and turning their most solemn, deliberative counsel into a scene of strife and wild confusion. Paul felt that the name of his God had suffered reproach in the eyes of the heathen. So there were the Jewish leaders, God's representative to the wider world, to the Romans. And the Romans looked on, and what did God's, how did they reveal God to them? Chaos, confusion. If someone doesn't believe the exact thing that we believe, we're going to kill him. And Paul thought, you know what? Because I came to Jerusalem, that took place, and maybe God's name has suffered reproach in the eyes of the people. Paul's in a pretty dark place here, isn't he? He's lost everything, he's lonely, he's doubting, and things are about to get a lot worse as well. While he's reflecting on the things of the day, some of the other Jews are conspiring on how to bring about his destruction. And in the rest of the chapter, we see that in the next day, over 40 people, they, they make an oath that they will not eat anything until they've killed Paul. Imagine if someone did to you said, Daniel, 
We have this whole crowd of people, and until we kill you, we're not going to eat anything. Pretty terrifying things. And Paul doesn't even know that this is about to come around the corner. But the awesome thing is that when Paul is at his darkest, his darkest hour, he gets a visit. And we see this in, in verse 11. It says, The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Paul is stripped of everything. And who does he get a visit from? The resurrected Christ. And he doesn't just hear a voice. It says he came and stood by him. Here we see Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, in bodily form, appears to Paul at his darker hour, and he says, take courage. The same words that Jesus had said to the paralyzed man when the, the, they were dragging him on a blanket, he said, take courage. Or he might, might say, take heart or be of good cheer. Take courage. The same thing when the woman that was bleeding for 12 years came to Jesus, he said, take courage. When Jesus was on the water and he saw the, the disciples in distress, he said, take courage. Before Jesus died on the cross and his disciples were mourning that his, they were going to lose him, he said, take courage. And here we see Paul at his darkest hour, visited by the one who means everything to him. And Jesus says, take courage. Just as you've been my witness in Jerusalem, in other words, you've been faithful to me here in Jerusalem. So you are going to be a witness to me in Rome. Not only am I still in control, but your imprisonment and the events of today are going to lead you to bigger things. You're even going to be my witness before the, the, the most important person of the entire then-known world, before the Caesar. God is in control. The last passage we're going to look at is Philippians. Now you might be thinking, why are we going to Philippians? Well, Philippians was written while Paul was in prison in Rome. Okay? Again, in prison, a lot of time to reflect, a lot of time to think about the things that have gone on before. And while he's reflecting, he writes this letter to the Philippians that I am, I think, likely, with all likelihood, came out of this experience that we read today, at least experiences like that. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, he says, he says, look out for the dogs. Okay, another bit of name calling there. He's talking about these, these enemies of, of the cause of Christ. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Speaking of those people who think that circumcision is their gospel. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and, and put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, we're not like those whitewashed walls. We are people who put no confidence in, our, in ourselves, in our, in our appearance, in those things. But we put our confidence in the Spirit who lives within us. Verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence, Paul says, if I wanted to, I could be, I could be proud in my own, my own um, abilities and achievements and things. He, he says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul could have been any one of those people in the, in the Sanhedrin. He could have been, he could have standed out at the top of all those people. 
But he says, verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of how many things? All things. And count them, them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul considered all those things that he once had as rubbish. And he threw them away. Paul threw it all away and what was he left with? He was left with Jesus. And he says that the worth of being left, Jesus is so valuable to him, it surpasses anything else that he possibly could have. The worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And in Paul's darkest hour, when he was faced with the reality that he had lost everything, along comes Jesus and he stands by him, by his side. So this year, in 2015, what are going to be some of your goals? Maybe I will live this year before God in all good conscience. Maybe I will do all that I can to share the good news of the resurrected Christ. And I believe Paul would certainly have had those two goals before him for every year of his, of his post-converted life. But for Paul, the most important thing is that at the end of this year, I will know Jesus. And my challenge for you for this year is what things are we doing this year to ensure that at the end of this year, we will know Jesus? What things do we need to do morning by morning, day by day? Because all of us have goals. All of us have things that we're striving for. And we could have the world, but if we miss this one thing, what's the point? And Paul realized what was most invaluable, and he said, if I lose all thing, everything else, the one thing that I will know is that I will know the resurrected Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, we want to have an experience with the resurrected Christ just like Paul had. When he met you on that road to Damascus and his life tur- completely turned upside down, Lord, we want you to turn our lives upside down, upside down today. And as we enter into this new year, there's all sorts of challenges and trials and things that may come before us, Lord. And we pray that, that we would truly be able to be good, faithful witnesses of the resurrected Christ. Lord, we pray that you'll help us to live in all good conscience before you, Lord. But ultimately, Lord, we pray that, that at the end of the year, we will know you. That we will be in a deeper, more meaningful, more life-transforming relationship with the all-powerful, the enthroned Christ in heaven. And that is our goal, and that is our desire, Lord. And we just pray that you will help us to achieve that. Be with us this the rest of this Sabbath and this, this weekend and this weekend this year, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.